Well, hello everybody, this is Tim Green with the Rattle Magazine, and welcome to Rattlecast number 199. So glad you could join me. Uh, today's guest is Barbara Hamby. She'll be here in about 10 minutes, but before we begin, I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell for notifications. Whatever you can do to help poetry spread around the internet would be much appreciated. Um, and I really do mean that. So click something right now if you're watching it, either on Facebook or YouTube, uh, or leave a review on iTunes. It really does help. It helps a lot. So you can even look at like the number of likes and stuff, and that translates into more views, and then more people get to share and understand and appreciate great poetry. So uh, help us out if you would. Now we're going to start out with uh, the Poetry Spawn poets, as we always do. Dante Di Stefano, who's a regular uh, in Poetry Spawn, is not here today. He is at a at a work party, I guess, uh, but. Uh, he's going to be the main guest. He has a book out. So he's going to be the main guest on August 7th, we decided. So if you're missing Dante, uh, you'll be able to see him then. But his poem is about the death of Cormac McCarthy and Father's Day and like the violence of his novels. It was a very complicated, uh, <laughs> complicated poem. And let me take a, uh, a look at it here, and then we'll play Dante's recording for the show. So everybody who hasn't seen it yet get to, gets to uh, give it a listen on your... Uh, on your podcast. But Dante says, uh, Cormac McCarthy is one of my favorite novelists. I wrote this thinking about his death this week and the ways in which McCarthy's books have helped me understand our nation's romance with brutality. I was also thinking about how I might explain some of this to my small children. I've read The Hungry Caterpillar and Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See a Thousand Times in the Past Five Years? In Carl's book, uh, and Carl's book's The World in All Its Wonder Unfolds. I thought it would be interesting to look at McCarthy's grim, fatalistic view of human nature through the lens of Carly's imagination. The last two words of the poem, which are fly them, um, are the last two words of my favorite Cormac McCarthy novel, Sutri. And here's Dante Stefano reading his poem. Um, I'll let him read the title because it's very long. We want to say it twice. Uh, but here he is. Here's Dante. After the death of Cormac McCarthy, I look at the locust tree out my classroom window and tried to explain the violence at the heart of the American experience to my children in the manner of an Eric Carl book. Over there, there is a green thing in the way, under the silver of the moon that isn't shining, because it is the daytime, and on its many arms, there are so many thorns, you could call it a coat, a thorn coat, and there is always someone climbing its trunk and hurting their hands so much so. A little boy is climbing and a little girl is climbing, and with them the ghosts of their dead grandparents and their unborn children's children and a caterpillar who only knows how to eat and eat thorn and leaf on the way to becoming a butterfly and a brown bear and a goldfish out of water flopping upward and a wolf pup and a lion cub and an eagle without a nest and you and me and every mother and father and son and daughter who ever was. We are all climbing and climbing and climbing until our hands ache and ache and ache and make a cradle of that ache and hang a lullaby in the air above that cradle. And we are all going up and up and up, and it is painful and strange because we are all also falling down and down and down, deeper than the deepest part of the ocean, which is singing to us in the way a humpback whale does, or in the way the waves sing to the shore 
And if you listen very closely, you can hear a great, great writer whispering to the waves in us and the trees in us and the thorns and all that climbing and all those cut palms and bleeding fingers. Listen, he is ending his book. He is ending the great book of his life. He has no say in this, but he is saying on the last page, fly them. Yeah, he's ending the great book of his life. A great poem there by Dante DiStefano. Um, in remembrance of Cormoran Pancarthy, I don't know what Dante's new book is about. He's setting it, hasn't gotten here yet, but uh, hopefully it's about uh, fatherhood, I can imagine, because so many of his poems are about that, and fatherhood ties so much into Cormoran Pancarthy with The Road, too. We had a whole bunch of poems uh, submitted this year, or this uh, this week, about fathers and Father's Day because of um, the, the father figures in McCarthy's novels. So um, interesting uh, to see there, and a good tie-in for Dante. Uh, so we look forward to seeing him and learning more about Dante on August 7th. Now we are going to uh, move on to tomorrow's poet, a secret surprise bonus. Erin Murphy is here. Erin was the guest on Rattlecast um, about a year ago. And here she is with a new poem about the um, I-95 collapse in uh, the Philadelphia area. So, hey, Erin, how are you doing? I, you got to unmute. Unmuting. Um, thanks for thanks for having me, and thanks for giving all of us the opportunity to engage with the world every week as as writers, as readers, and as listeners. Yeah, it's just so great to have you here, and, and we loved your your work with your uh, your demi sonnets. Remember from that episode, and, and all the great stuff you do um, editing. You wrote a great demi sonnet that week. Uh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, yeah. it's a great form. I really liked it a lot. Um, but but this poem is not a, a demi sonnet. It's a it's a longer form in a, in a series. And tell us what's about and why you were inspired to write it. But in case people haven't heard, some people like me live under bubbles. I did hear about this, but there are a lot of new stories I didn't even hear about. Right. And this is a sort of a big one if you live in the uh, eastern corridor, right? Right, right. So last week's uh, tanker uh, truck crash on I ninety five. Uh, basically shut down uh, I-95 in both directions because the truck caught on fire and uh, then it melted uh, these steel beams and a whole span of I-95 collapsed. But before I talk a little bit more about the poem, I just wanted to acknowledge uh, the loss of life that happened in this tragedy because the truck driver was a 53-year-old man named Nathan Moody. He was from New Jersey and he preferred the short hauls um, for his trucking job because he wanted to be able to spend more time with his seven-year-old daughter who survives him. So the poem is not about Mr. Moody, but I did want to um, acknowledge him. The poem has to do with my experiences living near uh, I-95 for more than half of my life. And, um, Yesterday, I was listening to the poet uh, Robin Costa Lewis. She was talking about growing up in Louisiana and how the Mississippi River is such a significant tributary, you know, running through the United States. And I thought, well, for those of us on the East Coast, I-95 kind of functions that way unexpectedly. And a week ago, last Sunday, I was sitting in a bar in Charleston, West Virginia, as one does. Uh, but I was sitting with the poets Mark um, Mark Harshman and Jerry Lafemina, and we were getting ready to give a reading um, in the festival, as they call it, in Charleston. And we were hearing the news about this collapse, and it really affected me on kind of a visceral level, surprisingly. Uh, and I think that was because 
you know, we tend to think of all the negative elements of a highway and an interstate and, and you're on the West Coast and I know all about that in the LA area. You know, you think of the pollution and you think of the traffic and you think of accidents and noise. And I hadn't really thought that much about how even if something is kind of a negative experience, when it happens enough, when you're in that space enough, you end up having formative experiences there. And so that's where the poem came from. Yeah, it's really interesting to think of it, you know, compared to something like the Mississippi, but it's so, you know, even more people flow up and down that than the Mississippi. And uh, it's the right, it's the most traveled road in the United States. Yeah, yeah, those concrete rivers. It's really interesting to think of it that way as like, as like parallel. Uh, but let's hear it. It says I-95 yeah. corridor. Go ahead. Okay, so it's a longish poem. It's about four and a half minutes to read. I-95 corridor. One. This is where I was cited for reckless driving, and my uncle quipped, 95 is the route number, not the speed limit. Two, this is where I stopped with an ex-boyfriend on the last stretch from Miami, and a motel clerk asked if we wanted the all-night or hourly rate. Three, this is where my grad school U-Haul broke down, and I waited for the wrecker with a Swiss army knife flexed against my bare thigh. Four, this is where I learned all the lyrics to Dylan's subterranean homesick blues, rewinding the cassette till it snapped in the deck. Five, this is where I interviewed for an adjunct teaching gig that would cost me more in tolls and gas than I'd earn. Six, this is where thieves took my Plymouth Breeze on a joyride, then dumped it on the shoulder, my just-cashed paycheck still in the console. Seven. This is where my husband missed an exit for the symphony and grazed a concrete pillar beneath an underpass. Eight. This is where I ordered my daughter vanilla ice cream with extra maraschino cherries after she lay corpse still for her first echocardiogram. Nine. This is where a tanker truck caught fire, melting the highway's steel beams until an entire span collapsed like a ruptured aorta. Ten. Corridor a long, narrow passage between rooms or land or time. 11, they are still sifting through the truck driver's remains. 12, I can never remember if it's steal oneself or steal oneself. Am I supposed to harden my feelings or shove them under my shirt like a shoplifter? 13, in the show I'm watching, one corridor leads to another, rough cut after rough cut of white walls in a workplace maze. 14. The day of the symphony, we abandoned our SUV on the off-ramp and ran four blocks to the concert hall, plunking into plush seats just in time for da-da-da-dum. 15. Commute. Hospital, concert, wedding, commute, bar mitzvah, commute, funeral, commute. 16. Lately, I need to sit closer to the throat of a bass trombone or purring cat 
to feel a stirring in my pulse. 17. My uncle is gone now, a stroke two days before Christmas. 18. For years, I replayed that last conversation in my ex's red Jetta, his hands trying to bend the steering wheel, his eyes swollen. 19. What's the difference between carefree and careless? 20. I'm not sure. I want to know. 21. So many bodies and bodies in motion. 22. I can't steal myself. I'm already stolen. And that was I-95 Corridor by Aaron Murphy, tomorrow's Poet of the Day on Rattle.com, coming out to all you email subscribers first thing in the morning. And uh, Aaron, I wanted to ask about this poem in the way that, um, you know, there's a way, so so Holo Holo is a, a, an aimless walk that Barbara Hamm is going to come up with. And um, and it, it's her uh, her book title coming up. And and I, I'm thinking about how poetry is kind of an aimless walk. And and. You know, it feels like you were listing details here before you got to that steel and steel kind of connection, which turns the poem into, um, you know, that's sort of what, what the movement in the poem is to get to that point. Did that, is that something that came to you in the process of the poem? What's the process like? Were you just listing out all the, the memories and then you came up with that? Right. So uh, for me, poems frequently start with some kind of feeling, in this case, this reaction to the collapse of, of the highway something that I don't understand that I sort of worry in my mind, but it doesn't start to take shape as a poem until I have a line or an image and frequently that's rooted in language. So for me, when I heard about the steel melting and of course thought of 9-11 and the World Trade Center, um, you think of steel as something that can't possibly melt. That's what led to the image of the, you know, the homonym of steel, S-T-E-E-L, S-T-E-A-L, and I literally confuse those all the time with that steel oneself. Um, and so that was really sort of the moment that it started becoming a poem. It starts with the catalog, right? The list, you know, of all of these, you know, incidents and experiences on 95. But I wanted that rupture in the middle of the poem, the same way the interstate, you know, ruptured. Um, all of that said, a lot of it, you're kind of thinking and sort of thinking and not thinking, mm -hmm. you know, while you're making these notes and working and rearranging, you know, all of that. Um, and it, it makes me think of what uh, Mallarmé said to Degas when Degas said, you know, that he could write so many poems, but he can't, even though he has all these ideas. And Mallarmé said, you know, poems aren't, you know, made of ideas, they're made of words. And I think that's really what it comes down to, these sort of building blocks of the part of the poem, you know, much the way you have the infrastructure of so many things in our country, like highways. Yeah, it's really true because it's a great example of, you just see the poet brain in action, that kind of associative part that we use. Uh, really cool poem and happy to be sharing it tomorrow, Aaron. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much, Tim. Yep. Looking forward to hearing Barbara. Yep, have a good night. Yeah, once again, that was Aaron Murphy with uh, tomorrow's poem, uh, I-95 Corridor. And now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, Barbara Hamby. So sit tight, and I will be right back with Barbara.
Welcome back. Thanks, everybody, for your patience. As I mentioned, Barbara Hamby is the guest today. Barbara's a professor at Florida State University, specializing in poetry and fiction. She's the author of seven books, with an eighth coming out soon. Most recent one is Holo Holo, which we already mentioned. Uh, also, Bird Odyssey, which came out in 2018. So we're reading poems from both of those, and then a couple from the new book, too, uh, that's forthcoming. Her book of linked stories, Lester's Hegata's 20th Century, won the 2010 Iowa Short Fiction Award, John Simmons Award, and was published in the, by the University of Iowa Press. She also co-edited an anthology of poetry, Seriously Funny, with her husband, David Kirby, who's been a guest on the Rattlecast before. When was that? Was that last fall, or was it two years ago? It's hard to even remember at this point. But somewhere in the past, if you go to rattle.com slash rattlecast, you'll find David Kirby's excellent Rattlecast as well. Um, but Barbara was the 2010 Guggenheim Fellow in Poetry. Her poems have appeared all over the place. The best places: New Yorker Poetry Rattle, of course, at the Paris Review, um, American Poetry Review, and others. And she's been in Best American Poetry three times, um, listed here at least. So here she is, Barbara Hamby. Hey, Barbara, it's great to have you on. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for asking me, Tim. Yeah, it's really my pleasure. I've been a fan of your work for so long, and um, it's great to finally have you an issue of Rattle. We don't uh, we don't ask people for poems, so I was always like secretly like, I hope she'll send some poems sometime, and then you finally did. <laughs> so I was really glad to see that. And then um, yeah, so we get to publish Box Ode in the uh, in the summer issue, which just came out. Um, but do you want to start out with a with a poem so people can get a, t- a sense of your uh, style? Okay. Um, one of the, um, I, I thought I'd start out by just reading some th- uh, things from my new book, and I have no idea what the title of that is going to be. So, uh, but this one is called, um, uh, actually, all of these poems are odes, which is my uh, kind of my thing right now is uh, writing odes on just different subjects. I came to the ode. Uh, through uh, Neruda and Keats. I love the uh, music of Keats's lines, but I loved uh, Neruda's uh, praise of the ordinary. And so uh, one of the things, when you read a definition of the ode, it's a poem of praise, but I think it's a more a poem of negotiation. I think it started out being a, negotiating, a negotiation between the gods and human beings. A human poet would been writing to a god or a goddess and uh but around the time of the romantics it started uh becoming um a negotiation with one's own consciousness so i think that that's still where we are so this is called ode on luck and i think about luck all the time because i feel uh lucky but also too i think that we make our own luck as well and so not that I have any answers in this poem, but and it starts out with a lot of questions. And I think that um, for me, a good poem or a poem that I feel good about is one that um, asks a lot of questions and maybe has some answers, but not all of them by any stretch of the imagination. So this is Ode on Luck. What was I thinking when I got into cars with boys I hardly knew and drove to houses out in the country where my screams would be muffled by the oaks and pines and the teeming carpet of mushrooms, too stupid to know I wasn't even close to being free, though I thought I was, but all that happened was we listened to blood on the tracks and tried to write down lyrics in the flittering of candles, and I was dropped off at my apartment all too alive to the possibilities of mayhem. 
Where was I going when I walked down the streets in my armor of beauty and youth, lying in the sun, thinking of Anais Nin in Paris, Rambeau in Abyssinia, Kafka in Prague? How did I translate my dreams into Italian? Not by planning, that's for sure, because I had no plans unless you could call reading a plan or daydreaming a plan or making soup a plan. So if I could ask Lady Luck, what was the secret to wooing her? She might say not giving a fig was a big part of it. Also being happy with a stack of books and infinite cups of tea or watching all those bummer foreign films like The Marriage of Maria Brown and Last Year at Marion Bod, throwing the tarot a hundred million times to see what was going to happen in the future when it was going to happen anyway, or visiting psychics who are canny in the extreme, figuring out pretty quickly that when they told me I was going to have two, three, six children, the look on my face meant this was not my dream come true. Though there was the one in Houston who said that in a few days I was going to have someone scream at me, but not to get involved because I had nothing to do with what was going on. And a few days later, that's what happened. One of my best students started screaming at me, but it was because her mother was trying to take her daughter from her. And I was a, a great stand and maybe looked like her mother. So that was a piece of luck, me being tipped off by the psychic and Deborah having someone to yell at, i.e. me, her poetry mom, who in no way wanted her daughter. And I've had my share of mommy saying snarky things to me on the same subject because they had no idea how much work children are, even though they're adorable. But being the oldest in a big family, I knew. So that, too, was a piece of luck, though when I was changing my little brother's diaper, it didn't really look like it. But that's the thing about Lady Luck. She can show up dressed in rags, smoking a corncob pipe, and then reappear 20 years later looking like Glinda in The Wizard of Oz. It being a matter of translating your own life to yourself, which is what I'm doing every day, interpreting my own language into an English that drives a spear into my heart. And I'll tell you who's lucky, everybody and nobody at the same, in the same milkshake. You put in a scoop of chocolate, a scoop of raspberry dishwater sorbet, a squirt of kerosene, and lo and behold, there's a cherry. And what can you do but put it on top? Yeah, great poem. I love that ending too. That was an ode to luck, uh, ode on luck, I should say, by Barbara Hamby from the forthcoming book, Yet to Be Named. Maybe we can have some suggestions <laughs> in the comments. Yeah, really. I'll take suggestions. Yeah, I'll take I, need them. Them. <laughs> I need them. I need them. So we hear, you know, in that poem, your your style, which is um, very maximalist in like where you go, moving all over the place, and also very fast, which um, that, that fast voice, sort of breathlessness, is, it becomes a heart of um, so many of the poems that you write. Um, where did where did that that style come from? Is that something that you always wrote? Did you gravitate toward that for a certain reason? Uh, how did that come to be? Well, I think um, oh, it comes from uh, Walt Whitman and Frank O'Hara. You know, my two of my daddies. Um, I just uh, love their work. I love Emily Dickinson too, but I don't really uh, write too many Dickens, uh, Dickinson poems. But Walt Whitman is just um, a motor mouth, and uh, I just loved him from the very beginning. So I think that that um, that's um, that's maybe where it comes from. And also too, one of the things I really love to do, and I don't, I don't, I didn't do it in Ode on Luck, is I love to write a long poem in just one sentence, mm -hmm. just to keep that kind of momentum 
uh, going because um, one of the things I think I like to do is give a sense of my own consciousness. It's, um, you know, how you jump from one thing to another. And um, it's, um, I don't think anybody's mind is very focused. I mean, it's an artistic rendering of it because nobody would really be interested in how boring my mind really is. So you're you're trying to put a good spin on it. But, it, it you know, uh, I really, um, my mind is always jumping around. Around. And uh, so I try to give a sense of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, David, uh, my husband, David Kirby, has a great um, uh, bon mot. He says that um, that poetry is the deliberate transformed by the accidental. And so you st- you know start with an you know, an image or a set you know an idea, a set of words. And and then I just love to let it go and see where my mind takes me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they're really fun to read for that reason. And you can really see, too, one of the things we talk about, people are always asking about line breaks and how long the lines are and what it means and things. And I'm always explaining that, you know, the longer lines make you read faster because it's more like prose and they sort of pull you along and shorter lines make you focus on the sounds of words. And you can really see that in your poems. I was pretty sure you'd read the poems like they are in my head, um, but I wasn't mm-hmm. completely sure. But I, uh, but that's how they come across. And then that's how you read them, too, which is just great to hear. And, um, and I, I just love that, that pace of it. Um, you know, it's almost like, you know, so many things are happening that like, you almost can't keep up with the visuals. And then, uh, and so there's this like really cool effect of, um, you know, like, like always running to catch a train or something as you, uh, as you read your poems. And it's really cool to, uh, to hear you do that. Uh, let's hear another one. The next up is Boxode. Boxode. This is, um, this is one that, um, it is um, in my least favorite form, which is the quatrain. And um, because I always said uh, before I wrote this one, who would want to put a poem in a box? And yet here I am because and I thought, oh, it's got to be in quatrains because it's called box ode. Um, but um, this is a um, really the, the beginning of the poem is where it's started. A friend told me about um told a little story and that started me thinking about um, different kinds of things. So here it is, Boxode. Sarah is bartending at Waterworks, a local tiki bar, and tells us about the box a colleague has with all the creepy notes men have slipped her. And I think most women have a box like this. And if you're lucky, it's not your body. And I think of what my own box might contain. Certainly the letter from the law professor's wife, the one she wrote when he asked me out and I said, you're married. And he said, we have an open marriage. And I thought, sure you do. So I said I'd have lunch with him if his wife wrote me and said it was okay. And I thought that would be the end of it. But he brought the note to the restaurant where I worked and I went out with him. But it was so boring that even he knew it was a stupid idea. How much she must have wanted to get rid of him. And years later, I met her again at a dinner party with a new husband. And she didn't remember me, but I placed her around three in the morning. My box would have all the poems and drawings that men have tried to ply me with, though most of them were pretty romantic. But what is romance but a trick on yourself, though a beautiful one, a lot of work to keep going and worth it when you're deep in the tunnels of your body, which lead to your heart box with all its swelling crescendos and arias of accordion classics and your brain box full of Hamlet and refrigerator warranties and your cunt box with its body 
bongo drums and traffic sirens. And I love to think of Whitman's box of notes for Song of Myself, all the little pieces floating like birds over the open sea of America before they were anything near a typeset page or Pandora's box, which only became hers when she opened it and let loose the flies of smallpox on an unsuspecting world, the locusts of polio, the invisible bubonic future that has just knocked on our door, everyone's body a box of cells wanting to break free of its suit of skin. And that was a box ode, once again, from the forthcoming book by Barbara Hamby, and that's the one that's in the uh, summer issue of Rattle. Um, so, so for a poem like that, I'm really curious about your process because it, uh, it feels like, you know, you said that it's sort of a performance of that stream of consciousness, but how much of it is a performance? How much you sort of want to imagine that this is just what's popping up in your head. Like as you're coming through a line, the next image is there and you're sort of letting whatever's, you know, popping up in your head guide you through the poem. Is that what the process is like, or is it a, a slower, deliberate process that you turn into this form? Well, I think that, you know, as you, um, uh, you know, become fixed in kind of your facility, um, I'm, uh, that, um, you know, you have your process and you trust it more. And I have to say that, um, well, I just got back from um, uh, a month in Italy and, it was really a writer's workshop. David and I got up every morning and worked all morning, uh, um, both on our own uh, bo uh, new books. And um, I, I got ready for it. I had all of these, um, what he calls poem kits, but I just call, you know, poems, you know, possible poems. And I had about 14 of them. And um and I ended up writing 11, and I think about eight of them are going to be in my new book. So it was really a fantastic month. But that's what I did was I had these ideas like let's there's one that um, every day, uh, every time I uh, drive to work, I pass this church, the, um, the True Fellowship Holiness Tabernacle. And it's kind of a rundown church, and but it has a, an empty lot next to it that has wildflowers in it and it's just, it's beautiful. And so um, I thought, oh, that would be a great ode to empty lots. And I didn't know where it was gonna take me. And uh, so I just, when I was in Italy, I started writing about that lot and then I thought, oh, there's a, a barbecue place next to it. And every Friday they have all of these food trucks come in and they have bands and they play the bands. And so, uh, you know, I, once I had my first line, which is, uh, oh, to have a mind like the empty lot at the True Fellowship Holiness Church. And uh, and then there was the bar. Then it, I just thought, oh, well, you know, and your mind could have the barbecue uh, joint and it could have the party that's every Friday night. And then I started thinking about probably they're speaking in tongues at that uh, church and what that meant. And I was I was surprised at where the poem took me. Mm -hmm. It was um, it was really um it happened in the moment, as David says. So I had my deliberate, which was the image of the empty lot, but then I didn't know where it was going to go. I was, and I was surprised. And mm -hmm. I think that um, when you're surprised, then the reader's surprised too. Yeah. Which is do, do you always start with the the ode? And now that you're writing odes, is it always an ode to something that's the first thing that comes to mind and triggers the poem? Because it feels to me like maybe a great 
sort of never-ending prompt to always know you're going to write an ode. And then you see things and you can say an ode to that. And then you get the gears going and, and the poem starts flowing. Is, is it always start with the ode or do, later sometimes do you realize, oh, this should be an ode to, to that? Or Sometimes I'll elaborate on the title a little bit, but uh, no. It, it um, I start with, the, you know, what I'm going to write about and then see where it takes me. And it's uh, sometimes it's, it takes me to boring places. And those are the ones that aren't going to be in the book. And <laughs> but, you know, when it uh, when it's working, uh, then then I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. Uh, and it feels good. And you're in the zone when you're writing. And um, and it's um, I'm hoping that this is my last book of odes. I don't know. Um, I always try to break away from these, um, you know, uh, you know, it's not really a form. It's more a stance. But, you know, I my my fourth book, All Night Lingo Tango, was very formal. And I have a book, uh, I mean, a poem from that a book called Mambo Cadillac. And when I f- finished that book, I thought, oh, man, I I love what I can do here, but I can see I'm uh, painting myself into a corner and I had to, you know, just let it go. And that was really hard to start writing free verse poems again. Mm-hmm. So but um, but uh, I know that um, a lot of people uh, ask when I go to readings, why don't poems rhyme anymore? And I said, oh, I've got a poem for you. Uh, and this, uh, uh, so maybe what I'll do is uh, read the the poem Mambo, Mambo Cadillac, which is a, um, I have to uh, give a shout out to the uh, Russian um, American poet, uh, Joseph Brodsky. They kicked him out of Russia and then he won the Nobel Prize, but he was an American citizen by then. So we got the credit for him. And, um, but he has a beautiful, uh, funny uh, crazy poem in his book to urania which i just love it's called 20 sonnets on mary queen of scots and one of the things that you hear or uh, i've heard over and over again that english is not a good uh language for rhyming because uh, of we don't have those feminine endings to our words and so um but joseph brodsky translated his own poem from russian into english and showed this American poet, what English could do and uh, how it, it, I mean, his rhymes are just unbelievable. So he, you know, really what he said is you American poets are wrong. Your language uh, or your English poets are wrong. Uh, um, uh, You know, English is a great rhyming language. And so um, one of his uh, sonnets has a mono rhyme, which is the same rhyme. And so in this poem, Mambo Cadillac, I have only one end rhyme. And um, and if, if we want to talk about process, um, I just had all of the words in a list. And I started out with my first line and then just would pick when I needed a uh, at the end rhyme, I would just pick it up from my list that I had. So it was a huge, um, uh, really a poem that came from the moment. Uh, so I was completely unplanned. And um, it was, uh, then there's also to a, um, uh, a secondary rhyme that came up in the middle of the poem. So it's really, um, it, uh, I had a lot of fun writing this book. Yeah, it seems fun. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it is. It's It was really fun. And let me say this, is that it was um, 
uh, totally a, a fiasco at first. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. But I kept trying. And then suddenly everything clicked. And it was worth all of the pain and agony that I went through of, you know, abject failure. So let me see if I can find that one. Oh, yeah, Mambo Cadillac. Drive me to the edge in your Mambo Cadillac. Turn left at the graveyard and gas that baby. The black night ringing with its holy roller scream. I'll clock you on the highway at 3 a.m., brother. Amen. Smack the road as hard as we can because I'm going to crack the world in two. Make a hoodoo soup with chicken necks, a gumbo with plutonium roux, a little snack before the dirt and jalapeno stew that will shuck the skin right off your slinky hips, mister. I'm not stuck in a middle-class prison with someone I hate sack of blues put on your high wire shoes mr right and stick with me i'm going nowhere fast the burlesque queen of this dim scene i want to feel the wind the glock in my mouth going south down by the riverside shock of the view take me to shingles fried chicken shack and your mambo cadillac i was gone but i'm back for good this time i've taken a shine to daylight Crank up the ra that radio, baby. Put on some dance music and shake your moneymaker, honey. Rev it up to Mach 2. I'm talking to you, Mr. Magoo. Sit up and check out that blonde with the leopard print tattoo. Oh, she'll lick the sugar right off your donut and bill you, too. Speak French while she do the do. Parlez-vous Francais? Okay. Pick me up tonight at 10 in your Mambo Cadillac because we got a date with the devil. So fill the tank with high octane rhythm and blue sugarcane and shark bait, too. We got some miles to cover me and you think Chile, Argentina, Peru. Take some time off work. We're going to be gone a lot longer than a week or two. Is this D-Day or Waterloo? White or black? It's up to you. We'll be in Mexico tonight. Pack a razor. Pack some glue. Things fall apart off the track. And that's where we'll be, baby, in your Mambo Cadillac. Because you're looking for love. But I'm looking for a wreck. Yeah, that's a great poem. That's a Mambo Cadillac. Such a fun read. And, uh, and speaking of fun... You know, you uh, co-edited the anthology Seriously Funny, and that's something that I think about a lot. There's an essay which I um, sort of misremember and blow up into more than it says um, about, um, um, it's by Kay Ryan that was in poetry about, about humor in poetry. And she makes this, in just this one little sentence, she makes the point that the, the ah in a poetry reading is so similar to the ha of a, like a comedy club, you know? There's some kind of spontaneous release of like, like there's a physicality to it. There's that sense of something that we can't really control, that the language is unlocking. So I'm curious about your thoughts on, on humor and poetry. I mean, that's a funny poem. And, and a lot of your work does have a lot of humor in it. And then, you know, having gone through and trying to find funny poems. At the same time, though, um, you know, we tried to do a humor issue of Rattle, and it was really hard to fill. Because things on the page, it's really hard to get the humor across. It's not like being at a comedy club because you don't have all the cadence and the facial expression and the body language to work on and the timing. You have to sort of build that into the poem somehow. So so what are your thoughts on, on how to get humor into poetry? And, and what is that connection between the, the sigh and the, and the laugh? Well, you know, it's interesting. Before we put together um, the uh, the anthology, there was a, a pre there's a previous anthology called Stand Up Poetry, and it's poems that work kind of like stand up comedy. Uh, Charles Harper Webb was the uh, editor, and he's a California guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, we've had him on the Radicast. He was on. Yeah, uh, he's yeah, great. Early on, yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, 
he um i know that um he asked me to be in his anthology and i thought i'm not really that funny i'm not a funny person i grew up in a, a family of comics i mean and i was always you know not the funny one but poetry allows me sometimes to actually be funny which i kind of you know i love it it's and when i do a reading i tend to read those stand up poems more than the more serious poems mm-hmm. so um, I don't know. It, it's a. I think that case got onto something there. Uh, it's um, that uh, ah and the ha are you know, and I have to say, I when I I'm at a reading and people laugh at my poems, I just love it. It's just you know, you feel like you're really connecting when you hear that laughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one so, thing that you know at readings that it's a lot easier to be uh, you know funny at readings because you have that sort of sense of, um, you know, nobody knows what's coming. So there's like sort of built-in tension. And then to break that tension is so fun. So mixing in fun poems, I think is such an important part of making a reading entertaining. Is there anything you do differently if you're you're sort of performing a funnier poem at a reading? Or do you just let the, the words and the, the pace go in the way you normally would? I, I kind of let it uh, go. Uh, sometimes what I try to do is set it up so that, as you said, things happen so quickly in my poems that sometimes, you know, you're, you feel like you're running. And so sometimes I like to set them up so that, you know, people have an orientation that the, in the audience have an orientation about what's coming up. But uh, but it doesn't ruin it, I don't think, at all. It just, you know, you go, oh, yeah, I know where I am here, you know. And I really, uh, I always feel like a, a missionary for poetry. I grew up in a very religious family, and so I've still got some of those, um, you know, uh, kinks. Um, but, you know, I feel like um, I want people to love poetry as much as I do. And the biggest thrill for me is to have somebody come up after reading and say, you know, I didn't want to come. My girlfriend made me. And uh, but I didn't know poetry could be like this. And, and I feel like, yes. And I said, yes, poetry can be like this. You know, it's a joy. You know, I really mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just it's so clear that you have so much fun writing these poems uh, because there's just so much come out from them and, and with that energy. Um, and we, we talked about the, the rhyme in, in Mambo Cadillac and um you know, and, and the difference between romance languages where they have the feminine endings that rhyme. And I always thought that because English, maybe it's like a bias of mine, but I always thought that because English has such variety, that's the really unique thing because English was conquered so many times, you know, and there's the French influence and the Nordic and the Anglo. There's so many sounds and we have like different words for everything, the high and the low and the German. And, you know, and so it makes it for really fun rhyming play, whereas in other languages, it's sort of too easy almost. Did you, do you think that might, that might be that? Well, I, I think that you've got to give your permission. I know one of the things Brodsky did in his poem is he rhymed um, the French word chic with um, uh, Ina Kleine Nachtmusik. And I thought, okay, <laughs> this just, I mean, it set me free. I thought, okay, I could, you know, anything is, you know, I, you know a poem can have, any, you know, any kind of rhyme in it. And so, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I think English is a great uh, language for rhyming. And I don't do end rhymes so much anymore, but sometimes it just comes over me. And in Hola Holo, there's a poem that um, is not only is it uh, in rhyming couplets, but it's an ABC Darien too, which is another one of my uh <laughs> loves mm-hmm. that i've tried to um i've tried to break up with it but um i can't help but write them in fact there are two in my new book and so, 
<laughs> so far. We'll um, see. You mentioned going back to free verse. Was that hard for you? I find, you know, in every regard, you, there's a way you sort of like get addicted to rhyming. And if you start writing right, it's like you start rhyming too much and it almost gets in the way of the poem because you're like so drawn to the rhyme. And even reading submissions as an editor, like if there's a really good rhyming poem, I go to the next submission that's free verse and it's almost like hard to read. I have to like get up and walk around the, the, the house to make sure I can get that, that rhyming voice and the meter out of my head. Was it hard for you to get rid of that, to get back to free verse? Oh, yeah. It was really hard. However, when it started clicking, I realized that my uh, voice was a lot more complex, mm -hmm. um, just sonically, than it had been before. Like I was... Um, so uh, um, it, I wasn't doing end rhymes, or uh, but I had a lot of um, assonance, um, you know, like internal um, vowel rhymes that um, I couldn't, you know, that really were pleasing to the ear in a way that my poems just they were uh, more prosy before that. Mm -hmm. So it was a good, really a good thing for me to do and a, a ton of fun and really, really hard. Yeah. But, you know, I always tell my students that uh, if you want to do something, just tell your brain it really wants to please you. And uh, it'll try hard to help you do what you want to do, but it may take time, but you have to stick with it. And that's what happened with me and um, the, po uh, the book before All Night Lingo Tango, which was, is all formal poems, was uh, called Babel. And I was trying to do that all through Babel and failing. And what I would do when the rhymes wouldn't work out or I, I you know, what happens, you know, you force you, uh, you, the, um, the rhymes are forcing the poem in a certain direction mm -hmm. and it just doesn't work. So what I have to do is pull the poem apart, make it a free verse poem. And then suddenly at the end of that book, I started being able to, to do the end rhymes. And also too, I was writing in 13 syllable lines too. Mm -hmm. So I was making it extra hard for myself. <laughs> yeah, that would be, but I, I always think of, um, there's a Vonnegut novel where there's a painter and, um, he does this, uh, uh, covers the wall with a certain kind of like latex paint from like Walmart or something. I don't know which store it is, but, um, but that's all his paintings are. And at the very end of the book, you realize that he has these intricate murals underneath, hidden beneath. And, um, and, and, you know, he says like, I couldn't paint the, the plain color paintings unless I knew how to paint the mural underneath. And there's kind of a way that, that poetry goes to like learning. And I try to encourage everybody to learn to write, even if you're not going to writing with, with verse and rhyme, just brings such life to your, uh, to your free verse poems. I mean, there it's, it's free verse, but it's still verse. And so having that music is so valuable. And I always like to think about the, uh, one of the reasons why I started, wanted to write formal poems is that um, a lot of formal verse was, you know, just dead. You know, it was, uh, you know, just kind of boring. And what I wanted to do was to write, a, and that's true of free verse poems too. You know, I'm not uh, picking on uh, formal poets, but I wanted to write a poem that had uh, uh, what the Italians call sprezzatura, to do something really hard and make it look easy. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like Mambo Cadillac does that. It's some 13 syllable lines and, you know, the same end rhyme, but I feel like it has that kind of flow and rhythm that really, it, it, I hope it, uh, it looks easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I am. Um, I always, uh, 
<laughs> it does. I mean, to think that that's 13 syllables is really hard to imagine. Um, and, and I always had trouble with syllabic poetry because I can't hear it. And, um, and A.E. Stallings was on uh, a year or two ago. And you know, she writes in syllabics a lot. And she explained that it's, it's about sort of forcing you to make decisions that you wouldn't and like making you think in a different way and forcing you outside the box that you put yourself in. That's what makes she loves it. So it's sort of an artificial, uh, sort of artificial boundary that makes your brain open up. And I think that's, uh, is, that, is that how it works for you when you're doing those? Um, yeah, it does. And uh, now I don't even count syllables anymore. Uh, you know, it's funny. The oh, I came to syllabics because when my first book came out, uh, it had a review and the reviewer said she works in a 12 syllable line. And I thought I do. <laughs> and um, and then I started counting the syllables and I thought, shoot. Yeah. I mean, so it was like something oh, that wow. that I was doing that I was unaware of a rhythmical um, you know, just um, I'd like a long, as you said, a fast line, a long line is a fast line. And I really love that. And so then I thought, okay, well, if I'm doing this, let me, let me just, you know, try, see what happens when I try to do it. And, um, but again, it's like the rhyme, when you ask your brain to do something pretty soon, I was just writing in 13 syllable lines, 12 syllable lines, 13 syllable lines, I didn't even have to try. It was my brain said, Okay, I can do this. I know what she wants me to do. And so it was working with me instead of against me. <laughs> yeah, that's so fascinating to think of like, you know, somewhere deep in your brain, there's like a little, you know, program that's counting while you're not counting and it knows. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Well, it's like when I do yoga, I mean, when you're doing a long pose, I start accounting, um, like when I'm doing my shoulder stand, I want to, if I want to do a five minute shoulder stand, then I start counting and then my mind just starts wandering. But that, that count is always there. I go back to it 180, 181. I <laughs> it's, but so yeah, the brain is, um, um, capable of so much. And, you know, most people just don't ask it to do as much as it can do. And so I think it kind of um, is, you know, gets a thrill out of being asked to do something really difficult. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I do a little game with myself where I try to guess the time and you see how close to the minute I am. And it's surprising <laughs> how accurate, you know, how often you're just like, bam, it's 553, you know, and it's, boop. So, um, which it is, <laughs> but, oh, um, but, um, um, so, well, let's hear another poem. I think we've, we've been, I want to ask you something else, but let's do another poem. Cause we haven't done a poem in a while. Okay. Let's see. Um, what do I want? Oh, this is one from Holo Holo that, um, that, uh, I think, um, I've, people have said that they, they liked it's, um, Ode to my younger self. So, uh, you were beautiful and stupid, though you thought you were so smart. And in a way you were, because you love poetry and Beethoven and apples. But why did, it take, why did it take you so long to learn to drink coffee and eat breakfast? And those boyfriends, oh, well, you were young and experimenting with everything. Drugs, love, dancing at lesbian bars, meditating for a month at a Buddhist retreat, taking the train from Kansas City to New York and staying with a friend whose Buddhist master told her that you had bad vibes and not to stay in the same apartment with you. The same guy who gave her a special stone to put in her vagina to cure the bad vibes there. Though she wasn't the weirdest friend you had because 
that would have had to be Marianne, who when I see her around town now and she's skinny, I know she's not taking her meds and that tiger walk uh, stalk of hers will end up badly for me in the jungle of her mind. So I try not to make eye contact because more than anything, I don't want to uh, put my combat, put on my combat boots and wade into her psychodrama. And when I see young women walking down the street with that lost look in their eyes, I want to say to them, don't despair, beautiful young women. You'll find yourself and one day you'll wake up and realize you were always that person but maybe i'm wrong uh because some women marry a guy who looks like a prince and and uh and end up in a morgue or in refuge house or hanging themselves from the chandelier in their rented rooms time can be dangerous so read middle march young women because george Eliot can do your thinking for you until you get your own mind organized or Dostoevsky and Charlotte Bronte, who helped me navigate the utter stupidity of my early 20s, and Keats and Garcia Lorca. So in a sense, my younger self, you chose your friends well, though they were all in books. And Thomas Hardy was one of your best boyfriends ever, wasn't he? Because you spotted your Gabriel Oak from across the room and were not pulled in by a Sergeant Frank Troy. And Jane Austen, she taught you how to hold out for what you really wanted. And Virginia Woolf, she showed you how to be a woman and a man in the same body through time. And the Song of Solomon told you that love could be poetry. So thank you for staying up all night reading and not going out to bars. And I really appreciate that dance class you took three days a week all through your 30s and after that the yoga I'm feeling fit right now and I know I have you to thank and those 11 years as a vegetarian you really took care of my heart yeah great ending and the way the fast pace uh, just the slow down at the end there every time you slow down it stands out so much and so strongly because of the pace it's a really cool way uh, that that functions um, that you got into how you became a poet or, or why uh, in that poem. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, talking about all the amazing things the mind can do and the, and the idea of holo holo, which I love that concept is a metaphor for poetry of going on a walk and not knowing where you're going and just seeing what comes up. Um, you know, it feels, it's always felt to me that poets are sort of like astronauts into our own minds. Like we sit down and blast off and, you know, discover some new planet we didn't know is there because it's like, there's no end to the universe that's inside. And, um, it, was it always that that drew you to poetry or, or did you develop that along the way? Cause you seem to be doing that very clearly given your style and, and the way that you go about writing poems that you're exploring. Um, is that always about the exploring or is that something you discovered? Um, well, I remember when I first uh, wrote a poem um, that went all over the place and also, too, went on to a couple of pages, uh, I thought, oh, my God, this is really what I want to do. And, you know, I write fiction, too. So I think that um, I'm not afraid of the narrative line um, or the sentence. You know, the the, uh, the sentence and the line are both uh, really uh, uh, important to me. Uh, but, you know, I just remember falling in love with poetry at a very early age. I would read poems. Uh, uh, my parents had this uh, set of encyclopedias for uh, children. And I remember reading the stories in that, um, in that uh, it's like maybe a 10 volume, oh, it was a 10 volume encyclopedia. Uh, and um and then, but I would read the poems and I would love the poems. And uh, my first poem I wrote when I was um, in the second grade and my teacher 
was really, I had the, uh, I get a beautiful teacher and she was just, um, she was, she was smitten by my, my, uh, my writing. And, you know, I was writing with a big pencil too. I mean, you know, it wasn't sophisticated at all. And she told my mother, she said, Barbara has a really good imagination. You need to encourage that. And so she always did, um, you know, anything I wanted to do, she would say, you know, okay. And this is, she was a very religious woman. And it was really sad for my brothers and sisters too, because they got busted for lying, but I could lie with impunity because it was imagination in my mother's mind. So, I mean, so from a very early age, so that was what, maybe seven or eight, I, I saw what the uh, written word could do. It was powerful. And I, you know, I published my first story in my school newspaper uh, when I was in the third grade and I'd walk down the hall and sixth graders would stop me and say, man, I loved your story. Hmm. And I thought, wow, this is great. I love this, you know? So, I mean, it's just, but I'm a graphomaniac. I love to write. In fact, I remember before I learned to read or write, I would fill pages with just cursive scrawl, you know, getting my hand ready for writing mm-hmm. <laughs> before I could even do it. Yeah, it's amazing that that feedback loop, you know, that we, you know, we like what we're good at, so we get better at it. And so we like it, so we get better at it. And it, it's cool to see that play out from an early age, like, you know, Michael Jordan shooting the basketball hoops <laughs> all day in his driveway. So, you know, it just... Or Jimi Hendrix playing yeah. the uh, guitar, you know, while he was watching TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just, a, it's cool how, uh, you know, evolution works. Who would have thought? <laughs> um, let's have, uh, we have, let's do two more poems. We'll do one poem and then we'll do kind of a quicker question section in okay. the, uh, the last poem okay let's see um why don't i read oh i've been thinking about um uh let's see loss a lot because you know as you get older you know you lose people not just through death but you know uh sometimes you think a friend who's going to be with you your whole life you know that you just don't have connect anymore and uh one of the um, and also, too, about anger. I've been thinking, I, I, I just read this great thing, a quote by James Baldwin, um, which uh, it, it's, I, am, uh, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their pain. And I thought, oh, wow, that is so good. Um, and so this is um, uh, a poem about um my brother, who I've kind of was really close to at one time. And uh, I haven't spoken to him in a a long time because his anger is just, was just, you know, too hard to bear. So this is called uh, Ode on Anger, the Dalai Lama and Elliot's Red Boots. Uh, I get this story secondhand since I'm not speaking to my brother, who can be charming until he isn't, which always happens. And his main beef against me seems to be that I'm older, which I can't see any way of changing except by sorcery or a rift in the time-space continuum. But my sister calls me with a report every time he checks in. And the latest is that he finds a photo of the Dalai Lama as a boy, which he places by his bed, only he doesn't know it's the Dalai Lama who comes to him in a dream and tells my brother that he has to let go of his anger, to which he replies, I don't want to. I love my anger. 
And the Dalai Lama says, it's not doing you or anyone else any good. And when my brother wakes up, he calls my sister and tells her that he's had this epiphany, though we've been telling him the same thing for years. But I suppose a universal spiritual leader carries more weight than your stupid sisters who are always trying to boss you around and made good grades and went to college, la-di-da. But I think about my brother's son when he was four, a beautiful boy who I loved to babysit. And we were going somewhere one day and I told him, honey, put on your shoes. And my father had given him some red cowboy boots, which he loved. So I left him putting them on. And when I returned, he had them on the wrong feet. So I said, darling, you have them on the wrong feet. And he replied, I like them that way. But in a few minutes, he hobbled to another room and came back with the boots on the right feet. And we said nothing more about them. And I guess that's what I wish would happen with my brother's anger, though he might have to go to Mars and come back to offload that particular cargo. Because aren't we all, uh, aren't we more like pack mules than God's most days, picking our way across the desert or up a mountain path with avalanches and the heaviest loads are our grudges and fears, while poetry and beauty rest on our shoulders like fairy wings, or one of those pastries in a shop window in Paris, almost too beautiful to eat, but eat it we do with its frosting of butter and sugar and eggs. Yeah, another great poem. That was um, Ode on Anger, the Dalai Lama, and Elliot Reed's Red Boots. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great title, too. What is there between an ode to and an ode on? Well, I think that um, uh, ideally they should be um, when it's on something, you're not addressing it directly. But when it's to, you're, you know, it's a, a direct uh, address. Gotcha. Like I just, uh, I, I'm still working on it. But I, when we were in Italy, I finished an ode uh, to the radio, and it's a, a direct address to the radio. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so I, I meant to ask or say before, if anyone has any questions for Barbara, uh, leave them in the chat windows, either on YouTube or Facebook, and I will pass them along. Um, we did have one question early on, but you got to be quick because uh, I, I should have said that earlier. So I had your questions here either way. Uh, but Cindy Gore wanted to know, is there a topic you want to write about uh, yet worry it's cliched? Is that, is that a cliche is something that you, uh, do you worry about? No, I don't, I don't worry about that. As a matter of fact, uh, sometimes... Um, I just embrace them because uh, one uh, in Holo Holo, uh, there's a poem about all of the cliches my mother used to uh, use uh, that I just miss so much. Um, you know, like she would just sometimes I'd be spinning a story and she would just look at me and say, I can read you like a book. And I thought, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, what book? You know, which book is that? You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, so. I don't know. Um, And, you know, God, um, if you uh, think about um, songwriters, sometimes they'll take the most cliched phrase and make a beautiful song out of it. Uh, Like um, Bob Dylan's A Simple Twist of Fate. I mean, that's a cliche, but uh, what a beautiful song he made out of it. And I know that the Beatles did the same thing, too. So um, I don't know. No, it's not something I really worry about. Um, I mean, we're always going to write about love, aren't we? Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> and speaking of uh, of worries, you know that last poem was about your brother. Do you worry about anything you publish being too personal for other people, or is or do you just uh, feel like it's your story and and your tell whatever? Do you ever hold back? Uh, yeah, sometimes, especially if it's going to be embarrassing to me. But you know, I don't care with him. Uh, in fact, as a matter of fact, I think that he would really like it if he knew that I was uh, writing a poem about him. 
<laughs> it's a little funny. bit of a narcissist, you know. So, <laughs> so I think that you know he would be very flattered, and most of the time people are. And you know, it's funny. I've had students who've been uh, uh, really worried because the um, about their parents reading their poems. And I said, don't worry about it. They're going to love it. You know, they're going to, you know, you've got a book out. This is every parent's dream they're, for their child to have a place in the world, you know, you know, not living in their basement, smoking pot, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, uh, I think that, uh, and so far I've been right. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times too, that if somebody's going to be upset by something like a poem, then there's, um, already something going on that's upsetting and it's really not the poem so it's kind of like what difference does it make if they have issues and they're going to be upset by things they'll be upset by a poem so maybe it just doesn't make a difference i have a student now who's got a wonderful book and uh, her best poems uh, her funniest poems are about her stepmother and she says i've got to you know i can't publish this until she dies and i said forget it she's gonna you're gonna make her so happy she's gonna love them (laughs) i don't know i don't know if i uh I'd be a little worried about that myself, but we'll. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another thing uh, that I've noticed a lot is um, that you have a lot of cultural references in your poems and a lot of sort of things that are are fixing it in time, which is something I've always noticed as sort of an American type thing. I I always thought of it that way anyway. And sort of the European writers and South American writers sort of have a more timeless style. And, Mm -hmm. you know, things like referencing ZZ Top, which I think was in an earlier poem and, and things like that. Are, um, are something that sort of makes it feel very tangible, but also like fleeting in a way. Is that something that you think about or, or you just let what comes out come out? Well, you know, one <clears> of the <throat> things that um, I, I'm doing as a teacher is trying to convince my students that poetry started at the beginning of writing. And so I start with the Sumerian princess in Heduana and then go on to the Hebrew poets. And, um, you know, there um, and the Greek poets, uh, the Greek poet Pendar has a lot of references that we don't know anymore, but it doesn't make his poetry any be- less beautiful. And you think about um, uh, a lot of references um, that we hold dear now are going to be gone in a hundred years. And you just have to kind of learn to live with that and not to uh, worry too much about it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um it's um I, I read something recently. It said in a million years, the only thing we'll recognize is laughter and mathematics. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> so, uh, no, I don't worry about it. I just I, I embrace my my present moment. Yeah, well, that's a great way to be. I think that's the reason why poetry is so good for like mental health, because it helps you do that. Um, so somebody asked, and maybe it's a, a fan of the fiction, Brian Buck asks, is there still a Hawaii novel in the works? Yeah, I've got it. I can't place it anywhere, um, but uh, it's all written. I mean, And it's been 600 pages. It's been uh, 500 pages. It's been four, it's 350 now. So I don't know, you know, and I've got a new book of stories almost ready to go too. So, so I'm working on last story so so given that you write both uh you know prolifically really what is what do you think the difference between poetry and prose is is there a definition because there's there are those gray areas the flash fiction the prose poetry is there something on a deeper level than just you know what the poet calls it or or what we label it uh, that makes something a poem versus not a poem 
Well, you know, I um, uh, I always used to answer that question with it comes from a different place. And then I heard Margaret Atwood speak one time and she said, you know, somebody asked her the same question. And uh, she said, well, you know, they said, which do you like better, poetry or pro- uh, prose? And she said, well, when I'm writing poetry, I like it better. And when I'm writing prose, I like it better. But she's, then she got herself under control and she said, um, what I, um, she said that uh, her brother was a neurologist and uh, when the brain is mapped, you know, with little electrodes, uh, where uh, poetry takes place is close to where music takes place. And uh, where fiction takes place is when it's being written is where near where conversation takes Mm -hmm. place. And so I started thinking of it on a continuum. So with music on one end and conversation on the other, and then moving towards, you know, the Rubicon of prose poetry and short shorts. Mm -hmm. And so it really frees my students and it certainly frees me. You know, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to write the same thing all the time. uh, David's uh, poems are very narrative and mine are kind of in between lyric and narrative, I Mm -hmm. think. But, you know, it's... um, it's kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear about the brain. I'd never heard that before. And what I think of it, which fits perfectly with that, is that it's, um, you know, poetry is more in the body and, and, you know, prose is more in the mind and the mind's eye. And so it's sort of the, the imagination versus the, the actual physical movement of your, your body and your, and your heartbeat and things like that that are, that are bodily. And then, you know, of course, it's a continuum. So, like, it's some of each in both, but it's where it, it points to more than the other. So that, that's really interesting to hear about the music. Um, let's see, let's close up with a, with one last poem. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, do you want Elvis and Tolstoy save the world or Ode to Killing Sadness? Oh, they both sound great. Uh, which, whichever, whichever you prefer. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll end with, um, uh, Elvis and Tolstoy save the world. And this, um, uh, came from a trip. When I got the Guggenheim Fellowship, I went to, um, on the Trans-Siberian Railroad from St. Petersburg to Beijing. And one of the places I visited was Elvis's uh, uh, estate, Yasnaya Polanya, in Russia. And then the next summer, David and I went to um, uh, Memphis and visited Graceland. And when I was at Graceland, I thought, wow, this is a lot like Tolstoy's house. And so this, that's when this poem was uh, born. Elvis and Tolstoy saved the world. I'm standing in line waiting for the bus to take me across the street to Graceland when Tolstoy shows up with his white beard and peasant's garb. And I smell him before I see him because let's face it, Men's Speed Stick was not big at Yasnaya Polanya. But I recognize him right away, those big ears and the beard like one of the guys in ZZ Top. And I say, Lev Nikolaevich, what are you doing here? And he gives me this mix of a stink eye and what are you doing later and says, I need to talk to Elvis. And I'm thinking, Tolstoy, uh, what, uh, uh, let's see, I lost my place there. Nick, uh, Lev Nikolaevich, what are you doing here? And he gives us this, me this mix of a stink eye and what are you doing later and says, I need to talk to Elvis. And I'm thinking, 
Tolstoy looked at my boobs. And what's Tolstoy want to say to Elvis at the same moment? And if one more supernatural thing happens, my brain might explode. But we just get on the bus, sit down and put on our headphones. But I can't stop thinking about how much Elvis and Tolstoy have in common, as in hundreds of people standing in line at, to tour their houses. And Tolstoy had a favorite daughter, Alexandra, and Chernoff and his all of his celibate followers. And Elvis had Lisa Marie and the Memphis Mafia. And there were Priscilla and Sonia, both driven mad by the Great One's sexual inhibitions. So when we arrive at Graceland, which contrary to my expectations is not cheesy, but a middle-class family home, and the guides tell us to go through the house at our own pace, but not to go upstairs, though that doesn't stop Tolstoy, who heads right up. And since no one says anything to him, I follow along in his wake, and he goes to Elvis's bedroom without knocking or anything. And there's Elvis lying on the bed. But the young Elvis, with his sad eyes. And Tolstoy says, Elvis, quit moping around. We have work to do. And I'm standing over by the closet trying to visualize an Elvis Tolstoy project. Uh, but Elvis tells Tolstoy he can't help him. I'm sad, he says. My mama's dead, and she's the only one who really loved me. My mother just died too, I say. And Hel Elvis's head jerks up. Who's she? He asked Tolstoy, who shakes his head. I don't know, some groupie. Forget her. We have to save the world. What's wrong with it, Elvis says. What's wrong with it? Tolstoy's head explodes and then comes right back together again like some crazy cat cartoon, which gets Elvis's attention. How long since you've been outside, says Tolstoy. I've been dead, says Elvis. But Tolstoy pulls him out of the bed. That's no excuse. And I'm thinking groupie. Black Sabbath has groupies, but Tolstoy? And if I were going to be a groupie, I'd be following Chekhov around because he's my idea of a guy I'd like to spend time with. But here I am with Tolstoy and Elvis, and both are as crazy as rats in a coffee can. But for dead guys, they're moving fast. And I make a note to amp up my morning walk because I'm huffing as Tolstoy shoves Elvis into the pink Cadillac, and I barely make it into the back seat because Lev Nikolaevich is gunning the engine heading south on Highway 61 to Natchez and New Orleans because, as everyone knows, that's where the world almost ended on August 29th, 2005, when Katrina hit the Gulf Coast like an apocalyptic medieval shitstorm. And when I look at my watch, the hands are moving backwards fast. The Cadillac speedometer is moving past 80, 100. And we take off into the clouds, which are gray as a Confederate uniform, then black. And Tolstoy says, we have to blast Katrina with our combined mojo, Elvis, or New Orleans will be sucked into the center of the earth. And Elvis says, Jesus Christ. And Tolstoy says, no, man, it's just you and me. And Elvis jerks his head backwards and says, who's she again? And Tolstoy shakes his head and looks into the rear, rear view mirror. She's going to write the poem. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't. I muted myself to cough, but uh, but yeah, yeah, just take a bow because those were great poems. Um, and wonderful, uh, wonderful to hear you read and be a guest today. It was just uh, really fun talking to you and, and getting to hear your poems and your voice, which is so fun to listen to and, and entertaining. I appreciate it. Thanks so very much. And thanks for doing Rattle, too. What a uh, treat every morning to wake up to a, a poem. Oh, thanks. Well, it's a treat for me, too. So I'm glad I'm glad you feel that way. Thanks, Barbara. Uh, we'll have you again sometime uh, soon. OK. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Yep, that was Barbara Hamby once again uh, with poems from Holo Holo. is her most recent book that you can find. Uh, her forthcoming book was uh, there as well. You can find all of Barbara's work at BarbaraHamby.com. That's Barbara, H-A-M-B-Y.com. So find that. Um, now we're going to move on to the open lines. 
And uh, the open lines work like they always do. I'll put this on screen right now. First, email your poem to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. That way I can show them on the screen as I was showing uh, Barbara's poems earlier. Um, email them right now to openmic at rattle.com. And then, only if you're sharing poems, only if you want to uh, participate in that way, uh, find the Zoom link and join this Zoom that we've been on. Um, I will paste it into the chat windows, both on Facebook and YouTube. You can read anything you want. You can read prop poems. You can read poems about current events. You can read poems you published recently, that you wrote recently. Whatever you want to share is welcome. Probably one poem each. Um, and here we go. Join me when you can. But uh, if you'd like to just sit and enjoy more poetry, uh, sit right where you are, and the stream will continue on Facebook and YouTube, so you don't have to go anywhere unless you want to share poems. So go ahead and do that, and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, like I said, feel free to share any poems that you would like, but we do have a prompt. And the prompt this week was right here. It's a very simple one. It was to... There we go. It was to write a poem entitled Happiness. That's it. Just a poem with happiness. You can do everything you want. Take, take that anywhere it leads you. Um, I decided to write a short little poem. I haven't done that in a while. And uh, here is my, my prompt poem. Uh, happiness. So they're all going to be called happiness, so, so no surprises there. But this is happiness. Happiness is a field we all day cut in the rye grass, the old mower's coughing chorus, and the ancient clay we carried for a mound past the perfect field, our perfect town laid out before us. That was my happiness poem. Uh, a little short one. Now let's see what you have. And we have, um, yeah, we'll probably do like a one, like a two-page max today, I think. We'll have uh, ten poets on the line. We will go in the order they appear on my screen. And uh, first up is Katie Dozier. Hey, Tim. How are you? Hey, Katie. I'm great. How are you? I love that interview because Barbara Hamby was my main poetry professor at Florida State, so I owe a lot of everything I learned from poetry to her. So it was really wonderful to watch that interview. Yes. Yes. So I've heard. And um, do you, uh, did you, do you fulfill any uh, hopes for uh, secret secrets being revealed or anything like that? That you always wondered when you were a student? You know, I, I feel like I should have asked her the question you did about the difference on an ode to or an ode on. And probably at some point I did, but I had forgotten that. So it's glad (laughs) you clarified that. Um, because I feel like I should have known, especially because I've read like every poem of hers I can get my hands on. And I just, I think the way she taught us odes was so useful for writing every kind of poetry because it just takes an appreciation of a simple thing and really like it forces you to really examine it. So it was really instrumental in how I unfolded as, as writing a poet. Mm-hmm. And it does feel too, like I, like if you write odes, you just never, you can never have a, uh, you know, writer's block because you can always write an yeah. ode to anything you want and then just yeah. get you going and get the gears working in the old, you know, the old brain. So uh, anyway, what do you have, uh, speaking of uh, prompts, what do you have for All us right. this week? You have happiness, I see. I have happiness and it's called happiness. And it's funny because had it not been dictated that it had to be called literally just happiness, it may have been, you know, owed on as opposed to, oh, wait, owed to, actually, because of how it's written, I guess. So. Oh, interesting. But it's just called happiness because I adhere <laughs> well, to the prompt. You can always edit it after the Rattlecast. That's, that's fair, too. No editing. Just put it out there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so this is called happiness. You can keep your damn basket full of puppies, tiered cakes bloated with rainbow sprinkles, your all-American field of smiley face emojis. I netted it when it landed on my daughter's face. 
Her eyelashes were wings as she wiggled away, dancing beneath falling cherry blossoms. How many years did she think it rained pink petals? Tonight, she asked me if unicorns exist. I told her the truth, that sometimes they stroll inside my mind and munch on clouds of cotton candy. Maybe that was why the sky was cloudless, that time I rested on you in the ravine, the sun, a seedless slice of lemon, wildflowers swaying in the stained glass light, stage swishing in the air, scent, a kind of kite. And you held me, which alone is always enough, two bluebirds chirping on about our endless seas. Excellent. That was a poem, of course, entitled Happiness. And uh, and Katie and I do the poetry space on uh, Thursdays on Twitter. Uh, we had, uh, it's sort of like a sandbox to kind of play around and talk about poetry as a group. Uh, Twitter spaces work that way where everybody gets to talk and, and share and, and call in. So uh, the topic this week is uh, what? Oh, regret poems. Regret. Yeah. Yeah, regret poems. And nobody's going to be throwing sand, so don't worry. <laughs> yeah, Come on yeah. over. <laughs> so if anybody has any poems they regret publishing or about regrets or whatever, favor free. We did uh, last week was um, the other word that was good. Grateful. It was grateful. <laughs> and we looked, one of the poems we looked at was Barbara Hamby's uh, Ode to, oh, I'm not sure now if it's Ode On or Killing Sadness. Uh, was one of the ones we looked at that I brought up because it, it's a poem that always makes me feel grateful. So, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if anybody wants to join in, uh, that's Thursday. you got to be on Twitter to, like, participate, though, on the on the app. But, yeah, looking forward to that, Katie. And uh, thanks for joining and sharing that. Or you can look at it on the podcast if you can't come make it live to Twitter, too. That is true. We yeah. record it for a podcast. So if I just yeah, go to do. go anywhere and go to the, the poetry space, type that in. Anyway, thanks, Katie. Thanks so much. Bye. Right, bye. That's Katie Dozier with Happiness. Next up, let's see uh, Carla Schwartz. Hi. Hey, Carla. How are you doing today? I am doing well, um, except I feel like I failed the prompt in the oh, sense no. that I... <laughs> <laughs> well, in many ways, but I, I did extend the title. So, um... <laughs> Well, you could always... I see the title is uh, actually uh, Happiness is Watching Ted Lasso, which I agree. It's like the only show I like. Um, right. But you could also just make it the title run in so this first line could be is watching it, Ted Lasso. Just like Katie did. Just like Katie did. <laughs> exactly. exactly. We can all cheat in the same way and it's fine. Yes. Okay. So, so just pretend. Happiness is watching Ted Lasso. TV didn't mean much until season three when Apple doled the... <clears throat> didn't didn't mean much until season th- three when Apple doled the episodes out one week at a time on Wednesdays. Well, technically Tuesdays until the last one when we had to wait. Oh, it mattered. There was a heat wave and the Russians were destroying Ukraine. But GMT minus four rolled around and all we had to do to say was Ted Lasso and sigh. What was it about that show? Ted, Rebecca, Nate, Jamie, Roy, every character had something to learn, to grow from, even Sharon, the therapist. How important it was she she be hired on to straighten out anyone who wished. Ted resisted visiting Sharon until he couldn't, until his labored breath sounded the alarm and he succumbed to being human. How many times, like Ted, have I thought, oh, What could I learn that I don't already know? Did growing up with my father leave such a mark? But there was Ted with Sharon on the phone, FaceTiming or in the chair, owning his imperfections, discovering his fears. Not every scene was a downer. Rebecca found love anonymously. Roy expressed his feelings for Jamie. Sam smiled even 
He smiled at the sky even when things turned sour. In the end, so long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, good night. A song you couldn't help smile at, sad as goodbyes are. When we had finished the season, I stared forlornly at the television. Then to a, f a friend who asked if we could Zoom with him, I said, of course, we're done with Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso on the television, happiness. Oh, that's great. Yeah, happiness is watching Ted Lasso. And I do. I agree. And I had to tune out, like sort of space out at the very end because I, I haven't watched the last season yet. So I don't want to have any spoilers. But no. um, I'm still I'm going to uh, once I get an Apple TV subscription <laughs> again, which whenever that whenever that happens. But um, right. But yeah, great poem. And I think, you know, Ted Lasso, you're talking about gratitude. It's like a show about gratitude. Like Seinfeld's a show about nothing. Ted Lasso is kind of a show about gratitude. So I think that's what indeed. makes it work. Indeed. Yeah. And, and the thing about it, if they released them on Wednesday night for season three and what we found out was that you could actually watch it on tuesday night except for the last episode then they really held it until the 31st <laughs> yeah. um so um so there's no time for a second poem is what you're saying um, right oh definitely not now we have 15 okay. people on the line now. all right so, definitely, all right. so it's a and i'm glad you said that because i looked down so we're gonna have definitely a one poem limit now <laughs> we'll, right we'll take back our two page limit and just be one poem but they can be up to two pages so anyway but yeah thanks so much carla thank you Always so much wonderful yep. Take Thank care. You. Yep. It was Carla Schwartz with Happiness is Watching Ted Lasso. Uh, let's go to a first-time caller. Jennifer, Jennifer Fossil is here. Hello. Hey, Jennifer. Hi, everyone. Yes. Hi. Thanks for letting me be here. I yes, appreciate so it. so glad to have you. So um, where are you calling from, first of all? It's nice to have first-time um, callers, fresh faces. Thanks. Yeah, I'm from Maryland. Um, my husband, Brian O'Sullivan, is on here frequently, so oh, okay, he cool. has twisted my arm, so so here I am. Well, shout out to Brian. It's good he got you on. Thank you. Oh, I, I see your poem here, too. Okay, so uh, I see that it's a, a, a prompt poem, given the title. Is there anything mm -hmm. else you want to say about it, or do you want to jump right in? I guess I'll jump in. Um, Brian had mentioned uh, the prompt, and it was just kind of spinning through my head all week, and so... Um, yeah, I just wrote wrote what I shared, so I guess I'll just read it. Um, yeah. Happiness. The most challenging poetic subject is happiness, my college poetry professor told us 30 years ago. What will you write about joy? One student wrote a poem about a misshapen strawberry, deciphering a miracle in its bulbous form. I wrote about my violin. An exercise soon turned to the stern and drong of desire. The S-curved instrument become a metaphor for sex, of which I'd had exactly none. My longings have always been tragic, the half-empty glass, more a trick of temperament than history. The feast spread before me, it's the contortions of my mind that steal my zeal. I eat but don't taste, that ripe accident of a strawberry eluding me still. The pleasure is in the chewing, macerating the cut of meaning, the gnash of teeth and churn of gut, isn't it? Don't we have to agonize to understand, twist experience round and round to peer into its facets, seeking out its hard-won heart? No longer young, a month away from 50, I've been thinking about how I aim to cleave closer to laughter. It's always been there, crouching in the back, a withered, kindly crone with one eyebrow cocked at my seriousness, gentle and patient as eternity. I don't want to live in the tragic mode, I tell my husband, and we laugh, as we sometimes do, at the sheer ridiculousness of it all, and of ourselves, and of this fallen world, where June strawberries wait in the field to be picked and tasted, resting like summer on the tongue. 
Oh, that was great. Thanks so much for sharing that. I'm really glad oh, you could be here. You. I'm curious, so uh, between you and uh, Brian, who started writing poetry first? Did you both both been doing it for a while, or is it uh, did one um, get the other into it? Yeah, I think Brian sort of, we both wrote it in college. Um, we didn't go to the same college, but uh, but yeah, mine kind of stopped, I think, you know, after college, and Brian began writing during uh, the pandemic. So yeah, he's sort of, uh, I've been watching all the great stuff he's doing, and you know, it's fun. So oh, very cool. Well, I'm so glad you could join us. Hope you do it again soon. Oh, thank you so much. Yep. Take care. You too. Yeah. Once again, that was um, Jennifer Fossil with uh, happiness. Uh, there gonna be a lot of happinesses on this this open lines. Let's see who is next. It's Deb T. Hello. Hello, Deb. How are you tonight? I'm all right. How about you? I'm great. It was a really easy episode <laughs> to do. Yes. Barbara yeah. sort of takes over and, and has a lot of interesting things to say. I kind of feel like I, I can just noticing, let it run. <laughs> yeah. I was noticing the similarity between the way she just naturally talks and her poetry. Yeah, and, it's uh, true. It's true. It was. I was like, I, I really thought I could like, ah, oh, I'll just sit back and relax this time. <laughs> so, uh, so what do you have to share with us? It was great. I also have a prompt poem, Happiness, mm-hmm. and... Um, I haven't been good at uh, uh, doing the prompt poems, but um, local poetry group, uh, 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 I found out a few days before you gave the happiness prompt that their prompt was to write something about joy. So I thought, well, I'm hearing this this message pretty loudly. So (laughs) I have a short one. Um, Happiness, shyer than joy, made of breeze, not sky, draws a little smile, that I hide with my wrinkled hand, incubates under cover, fledges into weightless glide as I die. Oh, that was great. And and Deb, do you want to, since it's such a short poem, almost haiku-ish, and my um my, my computer kicked me out while you were reading it so no one can see it. Do you want to read it again and just do it over? Oh, sure. Okay. <clears throat> Happiness, shyer than joy, made of breeze, not sky draws a little smile that I hide with my wrinkled hand, incubates under cover, fledges into weightless glide as I die. Uh, yeah, that's great. Happiness. Uh, thanks so much, Deb. Okay, thank you. Yeah. That was uh, Deborah Tannenbaum with uh, another happiness poem. Next, we shall go to Mike Bales. Good show. Uh, it's a different kind of poem. Uh, boy, I've heard that before, that longer lines read fast. Maybe mm-hmm. the Long smoother. I like the Mondo Cadillac. It sounded like jazz. We a long time ago we had a poet here who wrote poems that kind of sound like jazz. She'd even like snap her fingers or something to it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, definitely a lot of rhythm kind, and a lot of rhyme in that, and a lot of riffing. <laughs> it's not the kind of music I listen to, but it's nice to hear jazzy things. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was going to do my happiness poem. It's again taken from my big influence being a highway flagger, traffic control. And sometimes my fun times are when I'm not working in sightseeing. Mm -hmm. So this is set in northwest Nebraska, poems, happiness. Road work delayed west of Valentine after my all-night drive. The morning left to me, maps showing bird sanctuaries, stir imagination of what I could see burst into the air, a drive south. Concrete pavement glistens dreams, where from sand hills rise patches of grass and trees, fed by underground streams, under cover of placid skies, 
after the night's storm. And surrounded by all this nothingness, I have everything I need. The drive ends by a shallow lake. Such pleasure found when unsure of my time and place. Such wonder embraced when knowing I may never live this life again. Uh, yeah, that's great. And I definitely know that feeling, Mike. Uh, it was kind of what I was getting out of my poem, too. But that anytime you're doing work with your hands and outside, it sort of feels like so right that you're finishing something and you got the air in the sky. Uh, yeah, I definitely. I was squeezing in a little bit of time. I had the morning, then I ran to the library and Valentine and wrote whatever I wrote that morning. Then mm-hmm. the afternoon is kind of the long drag of work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, thanks for sharing that, Mike. It's always a pleasure. Okay. Thanks. Yep. Take care. So Mike Bales with his happiness. And let's go to Katie Buxbaum. Hey, Caitlin, how you doing? Hello. I am doing awesome because I have a break from my residency that I just started. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm only like an hour away from you now today. Oh, wow. Interesting. <laughs> so where, uh, where is that? At Antioch? Is that, is that what yep. you said? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, and we have cool. Juneteenth off, so, um, so I get to come here and do this. Okay, so how long uh, does the residency last? Ten days. Uh-huh. So we're about well, not quite halfway through. Yeah, well, um, that's the way to do it. I love those low residency programs. Yeah, but it's intense. Like, the schedule's been jam-packed, mm-hmm. and my brain is overwhelmed with information. But um, I am hoping I could talk you into letting me read two yeah, poems. Yeah, it's a, it's a two. It's a, they're so words. short. So if they're <laughs> like tiny poems, you can read two. It's like a one-page minimum or something. I don't know if that makes sense. Two-page max, one-page minimum, we'll say. Yeah, so feel free. There's two poems here. Go ahead. Okay, so um, the first one is after... um, It's called After a Jimmy Eat World Concert in Anchorage, Alaska. And it's it's a golden shovel after Barbara Hamby's letter to a lost friend. Oh, cool. Nothing turns out how we expect. You know lucky is less chance, more fate. We are star-crossed. We are waiting for the tides to rage with change. To be part of this sea best loved in midnight light, fought for outside of time. So even if there is no encore, stay a while. Eternalize the moment. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, after a Jimmy Eat World concert in Anchorage, Alaska. And hopefully, uh, I think uh, Barbara mentioned she was going to stay and just watch on the YouTube. So if uh, so, she's probably watching and enjoying that uh golden shovel after her that's really neat yeah and i loved her listening to her poems tonight i haven't read a lot of her stuff and i definitely keep an eye out for that um for that upcoming book yeah very cool so then what's the next one the next one is a a kind of silly little poem i wrote um on last week's prompt so i wasn't able to make it last week um and i thought i would read this poem and i didn't i didn't do a happiness poem so (laughs) (laughs) well let's go ahead so this is called at the park A stranger approached me, and I said, hi, in a voice too high-pitched for the good-looking man who said hi back. He must have realized too late I was talking to his big, beautiful, black dog. (laughs) That's a good one at the park. And uh, honestly, mm -hmm. I don't know if he was good-looking. I didn't even look at him. I just was (laughs) like, this is the most beautiful dog I have ever seen. Well, the dog is all you need anyway, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) That's what I hear. (laughs) Yeah, so two poems uh, by Caitlin Bucks. I'm good to see you, Caitlin, and hope you enjoy the rest of that residency. Yeah, thanks. Yep, take care. Night. And uh, next up we have um, Audrey. So, Audrey, how are you doing today? Hi, terrific, Tim. Good to see you. I've been absent for a while. 
Yeah, it's great to see you. So it, it's been a bit, um, but uh, good to see you back. Thank you. During the summers, I am not at home. Mm-hmm. So it gets very hard juggling grandchildren's bedtime stories and rattle cast. <laughs> yeah, well, that makes sense. And those grandma's bedtime stories are very important. So I don't blame oh, you at they, all if you have to miss it. They're any. everything. They really yeah. are. Mm-hmm. So I, I sent you two emails. One of them I realized I didn't put in an attachment and the formatting may be a little screwy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sent yeah, I one the- of them mm-hmm. say, saying, use this. Yep, I got it. Okay, so this was a prompt poem, um, although it doesn't look that way from the title, um, about happiness. And I wrote it as a high bun. Cardiac ICU. The doctor called. You were out of surgery and I could visit in a couple of hours. I struggled to block out images of you on a cold steel gurney, tubes and pumps. Someone other than me had your heart in his hands. I walked endless corridors filled with fear, stepping through pings and electronic blips and beeps to find you resting in a recliner smiling your voice my favorite music obsidian night pierced by scepters of sun darkness is friable oh interesting yeah great great hive in there i love the haiku at the end thanks for sharing that Aubrey. good to thank see you. you yeah good to see you too yep have a good night enjoy those grandkids <laughs> and uh, next up is laura berg hey laura how you doing hi um Okay, well, I guess I should call this Bomb Happiness. Okay, yeah, and first of all, I think okay. you're a first-time caller. Where are you calling from? I'm also calling from Maryland. Oh, nice. So, yeah. Okay, I'm trying to find, um, is this, uh, let's see. Oh, there it is. So I have a, what do I want that I can't have back? Is that right? Yeah, but okay. I'll call it happiness. Okay, perfect. Okay. Yeah, okay. sounds good. Okay, let's hear it. Happiness. What do I want that I can't have back? My parents my past. I want to change what I want into what I've got. Pick asters again with my parents by the river. Happiness, my mama would say, raising an eyebrow. Is that what matters most? Mama, this is America. The pursuit of happiness is inscribed in us at birth, like God's name whispered in a baby's ear. As if abracadabra, I have what I want. My past and my parents are mine, after all. I pick a fistful of asters, swim in the river. Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was a happiness, we're going to call it. So uh, thanks so much. Um, Really glad you could join. Hope you can uh, share more poems in the future, too. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. That was uh, Laura Berg with uh, happiness. Now let's go to uh, Tom Barlow. Moving on down the list. Hey, Tom, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. I uh, usually got, usually have a, a a poetry reading on Monday nights, but I got a cold, so I skipped tonight. Luckily, uh, luckily allowed me to take part in this. Yeah, that's perfect. And uh, so far, there's no uh, you know being on Zoom isn't contagious, so <laughs> no problem there. Yeah. So what do you have? Now, you, this is a, yeah. What do you like to share? Uh, this is probably more appropriate as of the first poem for the regrets mm-hmm. um, theme on Thursday. It's not anything about happiness. It's a persona poem. 
Well, that's all good too. Any anything goes, and it's good to break up the happiness a little bit too. I've always found a little backdrop for it. <laughs> yeah, well, this will break it. This will break it up well. Okay. Called relapse. Remember those wooden hand paddles with the rubber balls attached to them by foot-long rubber bands? Sometimes late at night when I can't shake the jitters, I sneak one from the boy's toy stash and smack that ball as hard as I can. But all it does is fly right back at me over and over and over. We're driving through Chillicothe at 3 in the morning, the downtown spooky as an abandoned mall, as though a neutron bomb, the one that would kill all the people but leave their properties attacked, has exploded here. I'm off the oxy again, and I remind my husband about my gallstones and my angina and the hammer toe and the hot flashes and how my spine is bent from the weight of my breasts and how my knees are bone on bone and, of course, the PTSD and a bad wisdom tooth and how I have to soak my hands in hot water before I can open the fucking jar of coffee. And with every word, I can hear the slap of that ball hitting that paddle again. But he says nothing, as usual. Keeps peeking up at the sky, as though watching for that bomb. And I'm afraid he's thinking, bring it on. Yeah, excellent poem, Relapse. Thanks so much for sharing that, Tom. Thank you. It was uh, Tom Barlow with Relapse. And uh, next we have Jennifer Elise Wang. Hey, Tim. Hey, Jennifer. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. I kind of have something that's a little bit the opposite of happiness, but mm-hmm. it kind of relates because whenever I'm referred to with uh, they them pronouns, that I often say that brings me great joy. You don't have to. So uh, oh, mine was great. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, a poet's respond piece about uh, Demi Lovato talking about how they also started using she, uh, her, and just kind of her being like misquoted by some articles where they uh, talk about how like she's tired of it, but she's really tired of um, the misgendering and mm-hmm. kind of how I relate to it. Cause we're both uh, bilingual and how our like native languages <laughs> also kind of navigate that uh, the, they, them pronouns. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, very interesting. Let's hear it. So she, they, when I say I'm tired of using they, them, I mean I'm tired of writing in non-binary when there are only boxes for male or female. I would prefer not to select, prefer not to answer, as if I am making a choice. In reality, checking that box makes me want to curl up and die, a a starved soul like Bartleby. I'm tired of facing the remorse that comes with every correction. It's It's exhausting to shoulder the emotions of every loved one wanting to be acknowledged for trying their best without acknowledging my own feelings, my actual identity. I'm tired of looking to other languages, so I don't need to confront he or she in finding that I must choose between an O ending or an A ending, or that the words are spoken or that the words spoken are gender neutral, yet I still have to write boy or girl in the logogram of my pronoun. I'm tired of choosing the comfort of X and being accused of embracing a colonial mindset. When I say I'm tired of using they, them, and you stop listening to the rest of my sentence, I split myself further to wedge myself back into one end of the binary. Oh, yeah. Very, very interesting. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jennifer. Uh, yeah. She, and just like a little trivia. So um, I always like Mandarin is mm-hmm. uh, gender neutral when you speak it. and But when you write it, um, the the ta that you refer to as yourself, you do have to write in your character for like boy or girl. And I learned that recently. Oh, really? That's interesting. a little surprise. Yeah. Yeah. For a language that doesn't have that spoken. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. It's, it's such a complicated, interesting thing for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Thanks so much, uh, Jennifer. It's always great. Right, thank you. Oh, bye. So Jennifer Lee Wang with uh, She They. 
And um, let's go. I, I don't know. I, hang on one second. I gotta close this window. <clears throat> ah, that's better. The wind is really gusting out there all of a sudden. Anyway, let's go. We got three people left. Let's go to Spartacus next. If he's still awake, we'll see if uh, he wakes up. It's very late <laughs> where he is. Hey, Spartacus, are you there? Hi. Hey, yeah, it's great to see you. Thanks for staying up again. Uh, it's nice like to 4 see you. 4 a.m. or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, five. Five. Oh, it's even worse. Oh, unless you woke up early. And <laughs> so, uh, so um, what do you have to share? I'm, yeah. Um, I just going to say firstly that um, the readings of Barbara were great. You know, I could listen to her for hours. Mm-hmm. And I've got two prom poems. I would like to read the short one, the second one. Okay, you could do both because it's uh, you know the short one's so tiny, ah. the second one's so tiny. Just do both. Ah, both. Okay, okay, cool. Happiness. What I like tonight, I am wondering. I don't have flour and cinnamon. You can't make cookies if you don't have the ingredients. I need all of them. I need to go to the shop. I need to go out. What time is it? An old lady asks me on my way to the shop. She is sitting on a bench. She holds a lot of heavy shopping bags. I'm wondering if she needs to learn the time or tries to start a conversation. I can't see well in the dark, she adds. 10 o'clock, I reply. Thank you, she says. A tiny girl girl approaches and stands next to her, waiting for someone. She wears a shiny circle necklace with a yin and yang symbol. This is so cool, jewelry, the old lady says to the girl. It is a gift from my friend, the girl says. They are always valuable at the beginning, the old lady says and smiles. Mm. And the second one, mm-hmm. a, a butterfly in a museum of natural history. Child, be quick, cut it if it is real. Oh, that's great too. I love the short one, especially. Excellent poems. Thanks so much for uh, staying up late and sharing it with us, uh, Spartacus. Thank you. Yep. Bye bye. Have a good night. So Spartacus Agnostris with uh, two happiness poems. Let's go um, next to uh, Jerry Stephenson. Tim, can you hear me? I can hear you. How you doing tonight, Jerry? I'm doing good. Yes, I am. Um, I got a happiness poem for you tonight. Oh, great. I think uh, I think you said it as a page file, so I can't actually open it. The clock watches, but just, just read it. We'll listen. Okay, I will. I'll start it off. <clears throat> Title, Worry or Not, Be Happy. Happiness isn't a lot of things. It isn't a flat tire on a dead-end road. Well, maybe if it was the road to hell. Happiness hides in little things that aren't flat tires, like your lover's lost earring you found while looking for the jack. Happiness can find you where you least expect it, when you pay for the tire repair in the form of a wallet-crushed Benjamin. Happiness lies in the lack of support. Sorry, happiness lies in lack of surprise. Is the bonus pack or add-on, say a smooch from your sweetie, when you didn't feel that you earned it? <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Jerry. And, you know, I was thinking as you were saying uh, 
you're going to read the poem that you seem like an expert on happiness. So it's good to have some, some good <laughs> advice for Jerry Stephens. <laughs> I, I work hard on it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it. it seems like you do, and it seems like your work is paying off because uh, you do seem like one of the happy people I know, Jerry. Thank you very much, Jim. Great show again tonight. She just, her, she was, Barbara was so vibrant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. What a, what a treat. Love the show as ever. Right. Good night. Have a wonderful evening. Looking forward to seeing you next time. Yep. You have a good night too, Jerry. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Jerry Stephenson with, uh, I forgot the title, but uh, a great poem there. Excellent advice, as I thought it would be. Um, let's go. Uh, we have uh, Lucy Chow still on the line. She's going to be the last person on the Zoom. Hello, Tim. Hey, Lucy. How are you doing tonight? Um, great. I didn't um, think I could be here with you today because I just had an exam, but I handed in the paper early. It, it, it's turned out to be fairly easy. So, oh, that's great. Here I well, am. Great to hear on multiple levels. Glad you're here. Glad it was easy, too. So, uh, so what do you have to yeah. share for, with us? I've got a prompt poem that um, I pretty proud of because and this idea of happiness i was thinking about it and um it turned out to be an a dangerous or kind of an insidious idea to me mm-hmm. because it got got me thinking about this character in douglas adams novel the the, the restaurant at the end of the universe in it there is um and this solution to our human problem of causing so much unhappiness in the world because we want to be happy, especially so much unhappiness to the animals that we eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and sure. and uh, the solution is to engineer happiness into these unhappy animals so that there is this kind of religion among them that to be eaten by a human being is happiness itself. Oh, wow. So um, here is my exploration of that idea. And, and you, will, you will probably see that and I'm taken into some pretty um, dark, but also um, darkly darkly not dark <laughs> territories yeah okay, i'll yeah. read the poem yeah go ahead happiness for douglas adams i am born a happy boveness by your leave since my days as a sportive calf my body has been yearning for something that can't curiously be named perhaps because it's too terrible or tremendous a beauty Anyway, this sculptured mass of perfect bound flesh, musculature stretched on bones as magically as multidimensional strings on the armature of the cosmos, stitched with a liquid thread that starts and ends nowhere, everywhere, which pulls life into each part of the fabric, sleevest over by a broad sunset river, brown with fertile mud, and constantly overflowing into Sepfusk night. This enormous, ecstatic, azurian, esculent flesh has never been less than happy with all that it can call its own. 
its robust vim, its succulence, and above all, its usefulness and native alacrity to be used. Use is the utmost beauty, and beauty gives an irrefutable goodness and truth to being me, no other, just me's fat, meaty essence. I'm always this happy because I am born this way, which sounds obvious, but is it? Sometimes I hear about distant relations, dim sisters and cousins from epochs ago, who chafed against their necessary end, who champed dry, stained straw, mourning their selves soon about to be dealt what was named the mortal wound by their dread. The story went that they were disconsolate because they thought salvation impossible. But they have been saved, after all, if not as this or that cow, at least as kind from unhappiness. I am born one of their kind, courtesy of your kindness, ma'ams and sirs. But my birth has been such that I believe in dying a good death. And because it's you who's given that gift, I'm happy to forgive that you have made me a happy creature because happy meat is healthier to eat. Because God also sometimes forgives his creatures for wanting to be happy. Now, my honorable guests, enough has been said of philosophy, and I'd like to meet that terrible, tremendous beauty in a windowless house further afield. I assure you it shall be swift, squeaky clean. And when I am done, let the carnival begin. A very interesting poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Lucy. It's funny, uh, it's funny they said that because I, my my son, who's turning nine in a couple days, I gave him the full set of the Hitchhiker's Guide as one of his birthday presents this year, and uh, I was thinking about just yesterday as I was you know putting it in a little gift bag, jealous that he could get to read it all. I kind of want to reread the whole collection again, and then this poem pops up. It's yeah. so many funny, interesting, thought provoking things going on in that book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thanks so it much. It was a Lucy. great series. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, thanks as always. A pleasure hearing that poem, Lucy. Oh, bye, Tim. Bye. So I'm Lucy Chow with uh, Happiness, another prop poem. And that's going to be it for the Zoom. I'm going to shut this down. And um, we're going to go over to read a couple more extra bonus poems. We have a couple minutes left. Um, let's see. We have um, Emily D. Ferrari as a poem, Happiness. Let's take, let's, let's see what, how that goes. This is um, Emily Ferrari. One, happiness. Happiness takes a hatchet to the empty hull and sinks the ship that should never have sailed, saving every soul that didn't set foot from that familiar destiny. Happiness steals fire and brimstone and ignites the arsenals before the weapons are shouldered and the sky is filled with stars of its own making. A hard master, a spark in the night, a stone flying, the pursuit of things that are just... Two, happiness... Lila, Lydia, and Natalie take, took turns running down my deck and jumped flying into the grass with death-defying squeals. Harry came out of his house and sang, Thank heaven for little girls. Later, Harry left his old wife and moved in with his high school sweetheart. When his Parkinson's got bad, the girlfriend kicked him out and he came to live with his daughter, Dia, who was working on her opioid recovery. At Harry's funeral, Dia told me it had been an honor to care for him those last years. 
And that was uh, another interesting poem, Happiness in Two Sections, by uh, Emily D. Ferrari. Thanks for sharing that, Emily. Turn on the... Too much light. All right. Let's, uh, let's go to Nivedita Karthik's poem on happiness. And here we go. Happiness. This is Nivedita. Nivedita's poem. So here we go. Happiness. Happiness is a gentle, blessing grace that whispers sweetly in the silent night. In the realm of true and pure serenity, happiness dances unabashed with unbound glee. Happiness is a shy and tender sprite who often hides in shadows unseen by light. But deep within the quiet chambers of our hearts, she weaves her magic spells, a mystic work of art. And then it happens, I mean, springs forth from the depths of our being, like a gentle breeze forever freeing. Happiness is neither a fleeting state nor a destination we contemplate. It resides within our tranquil core, just waiting for us to open the door. Finally, happiness, the shy and tender sprite that resides within, showers us with a world of delight. That's something that was Nivedita Karthik's poem, Happiness. Thanks so much for sharing that. It's really interesting to see everybody's takes on happiness. Variations on a theme. Trying to see if we have any more happiness poems. Um, Jayanthi Rangan has a poem as well. This is Stress Fracture. We'll see what this is. This is, uh, once again, Jayanthi Rangan. And uh, here we go, Stress Fracture. I knew I was sitting on a termite's nest when I saw a lone one from the infestation. First, Mo lost her job and my polyp prognosis was due. Six-year-old hiccuped his snotty life through his heaving t-shirt. His best friend found a new best friend, a Lexington crossing. I waited for the walk sign. When the light blinked, I did too. Rooted, I heard the traffic roar, and the water table of my eyes vaguely saw a stranger who walked past and then came back. May I give you a hug? I nodded, and he gave it to me. A tourniquet for my disturbance, an eye for the walk sign. Excellent. A stress fracture. Interesting poem by Jamthi Rangan. Thanks for sharing that, Jamthi. And I think that's all that we have for the prop poems. Let me, um, like I said, I would read a couple happiness poems on rattle.com. <clears throat> And um, there are a couple I'm thinking of. Let's do... Um, well, so Mike White's happiness is an all-time favorite. Um, it's one of Mike White's short poems in his signature style. Uh, here is Mike White. Happiness. Happiness. Fills a room. Or, sorry. Happiness. Fills half a room. No one around to lift the thing. All those parts. After a while, you give up, even dusting. That is uh, a, a Mike White poem, Happiness. And let's do uh, one of my favorite poems is Seven Happy Endings, which is not happiness quite, but you could call it happiness. Let's just read this by Leung Lee. I love this poem. It's been a while since I've read it anywhere. Seven Happy Endings. Love, 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 where are we now? Where did we begin I think one of us wanted to name this, wanted to call it something. Shadows on the garden wall, a man rowing alone out to sea, a song in search of a singer. I think that was me. I wanted to call it something. And you, you were happy with a room, two rooms and a door to divide them. And daylight on the other side of the door. Borrowed music from an upstairs room. And bells, bells from down the street, bells to urge our salty hearts. I wanted to call it something. I needed to know what we meant when we said we, when we said us, when we said this. So call it seven happy endings. That would be enough. 
You see, I woke up one night and realized I was falling. I turned on the lamp, and the lamp was falling, and the hand that turned on the lamp was falling, and the light was falling, and everything the light touched falling. And you were falling asleep beside me. And that was the first happy ending. And the last one, it went something like this. A child sat down, opened a book, and began to read. And what he read out loud came to pass, and what he kept to himself stayed on the other side of the mountains. But I promised seven happy endings, I who know nothing about endings, I who am always at the beginning of everything, even as our being together always feels like a beginning. Not just the beginning of our knowing each other, but the beginning of reality itself. See how you and I make this room so quiet with our presence. With every word we say, the room grows quieter. With every word, we keep ourselves from speaking even quieter. And now I don't know where we are, still needing to call it something. A clock, the bees on earth, gathering the overspilled minutes. That was Lee Young Lee from uh, round number 25 with seven happy endings. That's not the poem I meant to read. There was a poem by... Um, let me see if I can find the one I actually meant. Because I, I think it's by Mike Good. Now I think that um, the name came to me. There's just If you Google happiness and rattle, there's a lot, of, a lot of poems come up. But I think there's one by Mike Good. Um, maybe with an E? John Good, that's the name. Yeah. I don't remember why I was thinking of this poem, but, but I was thinking of this one as I was reading. So here's another poem called Happiness. And we'll close out the show with this, then the Saiku. But here we go. This is John Good, Happiness. And this is from Rattle uh, 28. Happiness. He found it on the side of the road, blood smeared across its fur like a stripe of red flag, and flies filled the air, too many to count. Back in the war, his wife used to make sense of things like this in long letters he held in his hands. But she was gone, and the generals were gone, too. The sun was there with the flies, as it had been before, and their metallic green bodies glowed as they dove into the wreck, their tongues like dreams their stomachs couldn't wake. The dog had been missing for days. The man had no evidence of its nostrils smoking like guns, or its black pelt slick with the sweat of a hunt. He hadn't seen the rabbit, either, skipping out over the tall weeds, four pounds of meat, hovering in the dog's eyes like happiness. He knew it had been there. That is happiness by Mike... Or no, John Good. John Good happiness. So uh, there's some other extra bonus happiness poems for you. And that's going to wrap up the show. Let's do the Saiku. And the Saiku this week is based on this article from Penn Medicine, which um, is really relevant to, uh, to me locally because the pine pollen is just everywhere. Oh, my gosh. What a year for pine pollen. It's like a it's like layer over everything. And it's almost like fluorescent neon yellow-green, too. But here's this article from, uh, from uh, Penn Medicine. And uh, the article is like this. Penn researchers provides better understanding into how genes make us prone to allergies. Slight alterations in ETS-1 protein level can add to allergic inflammation. So they, uh, they looked through and found um, the genetic link, or, or one of the many genetic links, and the complicated ways that they interact um, by making proteins a little bit different. And then, you know, the immune system is just so complicated. And so uh, finding a little step forward in understanding how allergies work, because there's so many people allergic to everything. I, I met a kid the other day allergic to... Uh, I I'll just a whole bunch of it. I couldn't eat anything. It was sad. And um, so really interesting research into this. But um, thinking about the uh, <laughs> the pollen outside and everything, here's my haiku, saiku. Familiar shapes in the yellow dust, pining. Familiar shapes in the yellow dust, pining. That is your saiku for this week, and that is the show for the week. And I mean about the dust. Let me see. 
Can you can you see this? Can you can you see that? Hey, you can't really see it, but man, there's so much pollen everywhere. But anyway, that's the Saiku for this week. Thanks everybody for joining us. As always, it's always so much fun to do these. Uh, Barbara was great. The open lines were great. Uh, it was a real pleasure. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, next week's uh, oh yeah, the uh, prompt next week. I almost didn't. I almost forgot to say it because everybody can probably guess what the prompt is going to be. Write an ode, of course, but write an ode. Uh, to an object in the room you're sitting in right now. That is your prompt for this week. Write an ode to an object in the room you're sitting in right now that kind of limits it. There's a lot of stuff in the room I have here. I can write an ode to my on-air sign, to that, that uh, hydrangea bush or whatever I want. You can write an ode to uh, whatever you like, but it's got to be something in the room wherever you are. So you're like sort of stuck wherever you're listening to this right now uh, for uh, for possibilities. But with, uh, with some narrowing comes um, some help too, so... That's your help. Write an ode to an object in the room you're sitting in right now. And you have actually two weeks to do it. Because next week uh, on the Rattlecast, we're going to be out of town. I'm going to be with Katie Dozier at the uh, Haiku uh, North America conference, giving the Higginson lecture about the future of haiku. And so that's going to be a lot of fun in Cincinnati. But I'll be, uh, you know, it starts a few days after the Rattlecast, but I'll be out of town anyway. And, um, so no show next week, uh, my one-ish week off. And uh, so in two weeks, the guest is going to be uh, NFT Poets. We're going to have uh, a bunch of poets from our NFT Poetry Issue. Not exactly sure who. We have uh, Sasha Styles and Anna Maria um, Caballero coming up in future episodes, so I don't think we're going to have them there. We're trying to, we definitely have Justin Tag. We're going to have uh, a whole bunch of people from uh, the new issue, and we'll talk about NFTs and what that can do for poetry and uh, enjoy some of their work. And it'll be sort of a roundtable like we did for um, for that anthology a couple months ago. This going to be rattle number 200, our 200th episode, Monday, July 3rd. And let me tell you one thing before I go to next week, as long as I get it done, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to. Um, at the regular time, there's going to be no show, but I am going to have a preview or a, what's it called, a, a debut on YouTube. If you go to our YouTube channel, I'm going to air the uh, interview with Ian McGilchrist that was from, uh, we did it about in September last year, and uh, it was published in print in the winter issue. I always meant to release that as a podcast, a standalone thing. So I'm going to do that next week. It's going to premiere, that's the word. It's going to be pr- premiere on YouTube at the regular time. So if you want to gather around and watch it live, um, that discussion with everybody else, the chat windows will be up, and you can uh, participate in that way. But I won't actually be here I'll be in Cincinnati, or the Cincinnati area anyway. And then we'll be back with uh, episode 200 with NFT Poets. So uh, you have two weeks to write your ode. Hope you have a great two weeks in the meantime, and I will see you later. Good night.